and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. This week we're answering a question so fundamental to the process of giving advice it will literally blow your mind. The price of advice. That does sound like a TV show fronted by the sadly no longer with us Dale Winton, R.I.P., but alas it is not, though it should have been. Uh, <laughs> simply put, is the price of financial advice going up or is it going down? Here to show me his theory of why it's going up and why it will continue to do so is a man much loved by financial consultants and journalists across the tra trade Twitter sphere. He's the man who still hasn't admitted to his wife how much he paid for his Johnny Marr Fender Jaguar guitar. He's got so much chutzpah, he named his consultancy business Zero Support, but he is also a thoroughly lovely bloke, and we're very happy to have him on. It is, of course, Phil Young. Hello, Phil. How Hello. are you? Hello. She doesn't actually know that I bought that guitar until, unless she listens to this podcast. So She probably won't, to no. be fair. <laughs> I mean, who would? Thank um, God for that. <laughs> good to have you with us. Um, Phil, first question. How, how is the Fender Jag? Are you still enjoying it? Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, okay. I try on the odd other... I mean, I can't play it, obviously. Nor can I play any of the other guitars that I own. Uh, but it feels it feels very nice to to slip on and of an effects. evening. Um, I, I've got the odd effects that, are, that you know a little bit of delay. I've got a nice Fender Twin uh, oh. amp um, with a ton of so very soggy reverb that comes through it oh. automatic. So I tend to just stick it straight into that without the uh, without worrying about the pedals yeah, and bits yeah. of cable and wire. Beautiful. You're a purist. Uh, second question. Are you ready for our weekly rock hard quiz? Absolutely not. And you, you didn't warn me about this in advance. I thought you would have However, known all of your mates have been on. No, I, I don't listen to podcasts, as, as, as you know. I don't believe that in them, really. Breaking so. news. Phil Young does not <laughs> listen to podcasts. Excellent, though. Uh, for anyone at home not familiar with the format, I have taken the idea of a quiz with a familiar theme that would subtly massage our guests' egos with easy questions and remove that element entirely to produce a genuine monstrosity of a random and pointless knowledge quiz so tenuously linked to each week's theme that you could put a tail on it and call it a weasel. In short, it's a pointless trip down pointless facts lane. Uh, Phil, this week we're here to discuss the price of advice, so here are five questions on prices. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Question one. Uh, in one of our previous podcast quizzes, I asked my guest about the Sinclair C5. Do you know what that is? I do. Do you remember what that is? It's the sort of tricycle One of those little, yeah, um, Alan Sugar was behind it, uh, I remember. It was actually Sir Clive Sinclair, but maybe I, I Alan Sugar invested. I thought he'd invested or something maybe like invested, that. Maybe remember. he invested. Uh, a poor investment, I might add. Last, last time we heard that only 6,000 of the 14,000 C5s that were uh, produced were actually sold, Phil. But what was the original retail price? And I'll give you a clue. It's between £1 and £1,000 at the time. How much were they selling it? That for? doesn't sound that expensive. I'd, I'd, I'd possibly buy one. <laughs> um, I'm going to go for £800. It's actually 399 Really? Yeah. That's I mean, a good I guess deal. This was I wonder how much they are now. Yeah. But, I mean, an equivalent sort of supposedly groundbreaking product now would probably sell for over a grand. They, you know? They, they, I would reckon one of those right now will probably cost an awful lot more. Well, they become collectible, yeah. as we discussed uh, last time. Um, I looked on eBay, and I actually saw uh, one for £999. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was, uh, what kind of condition it was in. But I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to drive it all the way down to London, to your <laughs> offices, 
Should we do it for charity? As a, as a particular feature for you. <laughs> the world's worst feature. That's amazing. We've done Steve Webb's Lamborghini. We should now do Phil <laughs> Young's Sinclair C5. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I'm well up for that. And if you think I'm not being serious, you're very sadly mistaken. <laughs> uh, so that project was a lead balloon. Uh, Sinclair thought that the £3 million advertising campaign he had planned would secure the C5's future as the product of the future. But it wasn't to be. Uh, question two. Katie Price. This is about prices. Right. So we couldn't we couldn't not put Pricey in. Uh, formerly known as Jordan, she's the UK's most famous top-shelf glamour girl. She spent many years, however, campaigning to raise awareness about disabled children and even campaigned to have the age of consent for cosmetic surgery increased. But is she A, 37 years old, B, 40 years old, or C, 41 years old? I think she's probably... probably 40 now. She's 41. Oh. Price was born on 22nd of May, 1978 famously married Australian pop heartthrob Peter Andre before separating in 2009. Do you remember that? Do you remember that whole sensation? Of I remember that sensation. Yeah, it was... <laughs> Peter and his washboard <laughs> stomach. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, a, a sad time. A sad time. Uh, moving on, question three. Uh, now listen carefully, because this is complicated. Western Andrew Vallow Price, connection was a Canadian dentist known primarily for his theories on the relationship between nutrition, dental health, and physical health. But in which American city did he study? I'll give you a clue. It's the largest city in Michigan. There's only one famous city in Michigan. I was thinking Hill. Detroit. But it's Detroit. Yeah. I thought that might be Illinois. Mm, no. It's Detroit. I uh, was right. Yeah. You, you, can, right. you can only accept my first answer. <laughs> it is Detroit. Uh, you got a question right. Uh, where the University of Michigan was founded on August the 26th, 1817. And I must say, if you were a world renowned dental expert, you wouldn't want to be honoured with a plaque. Uh, moving on. <laughs> no one got my joke. That was a great joke. Uh, question four. Phil, I mentioned Johnny Marr in the intro. I yeah. couldn't not put a question in there. Uh, of course, he was the groundbreaking and sensationally talented guitarist in The Smiths. But how much will a vinyl copy of The Smiths' 1986 album, The Queen is Dead, set you back on Amazon? I would. Do you collect vinyl? 80 pounds. Lower. Have another go. 50 it's actually twenty one ninety five for a that's vinyl a, of that. It'd cost about eighteen quid if you got a new one mm. of the kind of you know heavy ones nowadays. Yeah, and if you got the guitar, you it probably it's probably yourself. unlistenable. It might be scratched. Who yeah. knows? Well, it might be rubbish. <laughs> uh, well worth a well worth a look. Uh, album features the brilliant song "There Is a Light" and it never goes out. It's just a shame, I might add, that Mozza turned right at the political crossroads. Very good. Left. Uh, still, R.I.P. Uh, Morrissey. Indeed, I mean he's not dead, but he is to us. To, to most people. To most I think. people. Uh, I should probably leave that one there for <laughs> for legal reasons. Yeah. Uh, question five. Final question. Do you think he'll be listening, or his uh, lawyers? Do you know what? I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question five. Uh, sticking with Mar uh, for a second. His custom Fender Jaguar, of which you're a proud owner, is a yeah. pretty pricey piece of kit. Though listeners will have to research the price on that themselves, so I don't land you in it with Charlene. <laughs> But even pricier is the estimate put on a Fender Bandmaster amplifier Mar once owned, which was recently put up for auction. But what was the guide price? And it's a range, so it's between two numbers, Phil. What were they? How much would you pay? I, I'm going to say between 
four and eight thousand pounds. Mm, pretty close. It's actually ten and fifteen thousand okay. pounds. Now, shockingly, I can tell you that the amplifier did not actually sell, uh, which is a shame because it was used on The Queen Is Dead and on Strange Ways, uh, a great piece of memorabilia. For any fans listening, uh, get in touch. I'll send you the details. Uh, maybe we can share it. If only they'd gone for four to eight thousand pounds as a guide price, then they'd probably be more successful with it. <laughs> yeah, I would have had one very happy buyer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you could have given your Fender Twin to me. Um, moving on from stuff that no one else will know what we're talking about. Uh, thank you for taking part in that. Ray, appreciate you humouring It's been very me, niche so far. It I is like very that. niche. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's become something of... Uh, Johnny Marr Financial problem. Services Related Podcast. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, so thank you for joining me on the humiliating trip into the weird and wonderful world of pointless and irrelevant facts. We are, however, here to discuss something else, namely a topic which forms part of our great advice, great profession analysis for the summer special of NMA. Um, the price of advice, Phil, uh, does seem to be going up, uh, and we are keen to find out why, uh, if that's true. Um, for listeners at home who haven't read a recent edition of NMA, there is a column in it which you wrote about all the reasons why prices are going up for uh, advisors' clients. Um, could you neatly and in your own stylish way summarise <laughs> your point there, um, Phil? In some respects, it's not a suggestion that prices are are definitely going up, and and um, it's more a prediction around the future and, and, and an attempt to sort of balance out some of the some of the comments that I hear regularly, mm. um, particularly from people outside the industry, from external investors and people like that, where they're concerned about price pressure and fee pressure mm. and over the years i've always been slightly skeptical when i hear people talk about price pressure and fee pressure mm. because there's more talk than there is action around it yeah uh, particularly in the fund management industry where i heard i heard for years um fund management groups say that they were under a lot of price pressure whereas in reality in the background the management fees were being quietly tickled up in the background um yeah. so that wasn't really happening in in, in reality the um, the issues that I that I've been been looking at and doing a little bit of digging around has been really trying to look a, a, a bit further forward over the next five or ten years. In much the same way as a financial advisor would be doing a um, a cash flow forecast for their own clients um, or for a business, mm. um, I've kind of tried to look at it and say, well, actually, if you were being prudent, looking further forward. What's and what, what's the worst case scenario? What problems and what obstacles and what barriers um, could come out of left field that would would damage that cash flow and yeah. would mean that if you were trying to model this out in the same way as you would do for a, a retiree, you'd you'd just do some what if scenarios and try and say, well, actually, let's make sure that there's enough money in the bank to cover costs and plan for the worst and hope for the best. So this isn't a prediction from me to say that these things are all going to come true definitively. Mm but a bit more of a of a balance to the idea that costs are automatically going to come come mm. crashing down over a period of time just because there's going to be a bunch of consumer pressure or something like that yeah, or yeah. a robot which will come and instantly magic away fees yeah sure um so the things that i've been looking at in particular are around um the pi insurance market as you know i've commented quite a lot about how difficult that's that's becoming for people um db transfers is is a big part of that um we all know that at this point in time there is no great onrush of complaints coming in for db transfers that's been that, that's been given over the past sort of three four five years since pension freedoms was announced really um it it takes at least five years 
um, usually around 10 years for investment related to co complaints to start to mature. So I think what we're seeing mm -hmm. at the moment from PI insurers is, 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 a, is a guess as to what might happen in, in future. Yeah, and they're quite risk averse. A, a bit like Bucky's saying who the favorite is, you yeah. kind of look at it and think, there's something in this, these guys don't like losing money. Yeah. They're being risk averse about it. They're making a prediction to say, we think that that the market's gonna turn bad further down the line. There's gonna be a lot more complaints come through, something more systemic, if you like, than just the odd complaint that everybody gets here or there yeah. for it. And also bigger ticket amounts. Um, I do also know that at the moment, the um, outside of consumer credit businesses who had to get it authorized a few years ago and a lot of them are now realized that it was a bad idea and are heading out of the market or going into an AR relationship. Um, firms with DB permissions is the second highest number of cancellations that the authorization teams at the FCA are, um, mm. are dealing with. So fundamentally, all of that liability that's going through there, if there are um, a good number of complaints that come through is is going to hit the FSCS levy. Yeah. So we're seeing at the moment advisors being hit with increased premiums for the PI insurance. If the Dundee B business, that's significantly being increased. Um, it's a hardening market full stop. You know that there is less capacity in the market than than there used to be, and the PI market goes in the has always gone in these sorts of cycles. Mm. Um, so we're seeing increased PI cover. Um, we're also, I think, inevitably going to see increased FSCS levies. And if you ask most advisors out there what's the biggest regulatory cost burden, it's the FSCS levies and, and the lack of predictability around it that really hits people um, yeah. hardest, I think. Yeah. So year if you on think year, about it just changes too year much on year, it changes. But uh, I mean, I've, I've had this with people from the F FCA who've, who've kind of been looking at it, and I think they recognize the problem. Um, People don't like the volatility around it, but at the same time, as I've pointed out to them, you know, if it's going, if it's volatility that's generally going down, no one's going to worry too much. We've seen we've seen significant increases in recent years in the levy. Yeah. Not for everybody, not all the time, but I think if you if you look at the worst case scenario with DB transfers further down the line, um, that's a that's a that's a levy that's going to increase quite dramatically over that period of time. Um, the FCA have written out to all the insurers of late, trying to point out that the um, that the amount of cover with the increase in the award going up to three hundred and fifty grand, it shouldn't actually have that material and impact on it. But I don't think anyone's entirely convinced about this. A lot of advisors with long memories will remember the the kind of mid nineties and the the SIB review that went on there, and yeah. where the government fundamentally got a grip of this and said, yeah, yeah. we actually want to see a see a, a, a whole industry-wide review on what's gone on in this particular sector uh, covering these these, these products and, and yeah. this type of advice. So if that happens, I think we can see some real increases in uh, the FSCS levy right across the board. I mean, providers contribute towards it as well. Mm. Um, and the question that I've been posing is in that kind of a scenario, how are advice businesses that fundamentally um, most of them aren't making huge amounts of money right now just from the advice element in particular. Mm. How are advice costs going to come down dramatically yeah. in, a, in an environment where, where yeah. costs are on the march up? Yeah. Um, so I, I can see a situation where, where, where costs are going to increase. The, the, the one that I, that I picked out recently in the article, um, and I, it, it, without wanting to pick out Quilters specifically because I've used them as an example because they're self-insurers and they're a big yeah. firm and they've yeah, bought... Yeah, yeah. 
businesses with significant DB transfer liabilities of late. You can apply the same to the likes of SJP, potentially to Open Work. I'm not sure how they function and others out there where they are basically bringing on board and mopping up quite a lot of this liability at the moment. Mm. So as easy as it, as it is to bash those firms, they are effectively buffering the FSCS yeah. from quite a lot of pressure further down the line. And I also that uh, the argument that you could make is that the FCA, it's difficult for them to start to apply cost pressure on those businesses, and to, particularly to vertically integrated yeah, businesses. When they're already doing so much. When they're already doing so much to, to buffer the, the, the FSCS. Mm. Too much pressure within a business like Quilt, and, and they, they could turn around and say, well, we're just going to spin, spin off intrinsic separately, or we're not really interested in the advice market and want to try and avoid some of that liability further down the line. I think, to be fair... Um, I know, I mean, I remember years and years ago I worked uh, at Bank Hall uh, and there was a, a small network there um, called Investment Strategies that a few advisors will remember to this day. Mm. Um, it was small back in the day. I mean, it, it was about a thousand advisors strong at the at its peak. Um, but as a result, the, the, when, when they shut that network down, I, I still think, I, I think it was Scandia that bought the business. Um, and I still think they're probably dealing with complaints to this day off the back of it all. Mm. So big insurance companies owning advice businesses, it's it's kind of easy to boo and hiss at times, but they do tend to stand by the liabilities more and yeah. and um, and again, you know, protect people from from that sort of um, a cost going further forward. That if it falls onto the FSCS, I think there will be a significant problem with yeah. with advice and and with the costs of it in the UK. Interesting. I mean, I've got a couple of questions just sort of uh, coming off that. Um, you, do, do you personally think that the uh, you say the sort of five to ten year sort of time frame for complaints coming back through on investment advice? Do you personally think that the uh, you know the, the DB transfer market is going to uh, really retract because of uh, an explosion in complaints? You know, in a decade's time, or I think whatever? I think we've already seen from from what I can gather right now, we're seeing the um, firms pulling out of that market to offer that advice. Yeah. Um, so it, I think that there's still reasonable volumes going on, but it's it's shrinking and being consolidated into a smaller number of players. Yeah. I do think that some of the businesses that are that fundamentally are built to do lots of DB transfers won't be around in another five or 10 years time. You know, some of these businesses have been built up to, um, particularly the outsourced businesses that have done a huge amount of volume. Why would you keep that business open? And, and all the uh, all the liability that sits there in five or ten years time when the market's dried up you know there'd be no point they're quite transactional businesses if they pass the clients either back to advisors or onto a different firm different business yeah. it's relatively easy to shut those down anyway so in the event of a um there not being an advisor there really to to deal with those complaints um that there is a concern that i've got under i mean it, it's always been the case it's easy to blame gdpr for it or whatever but once those businesses go into liquidation then the files disappear as well mm. so there's nobody really around to defend those complaints yeah. all it takes is a claims management company to find a rich seam yes. of the right kind of firm to complain the right buttons to press which means that there's nobody really around to yeah to defend those complaints the the, the fscs has a has its own version of the ombudsman that sits within there that makes a judgment as to whether or not they can defend this complaint or whether they're going to, you know, whether they're just going to pay out fundamentally on it. Mm. Um, without there being a, a, a file around to look at, to review, and given that DB work in particular is quite, is full of quite a lot of subjective stuff, um, one piece of analysis that I did recently with one firm 
and they looked through, because of PI exclusions, they looked through all the cases that they'd done. Um, and a good chunk of them, there was an, an obvious reason that leapt out of the file to say, um, we didn't. We, we we went ahead with the DB transfer because of because of this because of that. They could mm. collect that simple data, but certainly for the bigger cases that went through, it was a combination of multiple small factors. So they, they were quite comfortable that the advice stacked up, but it wasn't an obvious thing without the file to look at, to read through, and to genuinely kind of ab get absorbed in the advice that was given in its entirety. It wasn't an obvious one to say, this is why we actually went ahead with this particular transfer, why the recommendation was right for it. It yeah. took quite a lot of consideration to read through the full file and the, the fact find and the report, et cetera, to, to tease that information out. Yeah. So I, I don't know how, uh, how somebody that sat there at the FSCS is going to look at that and, and say, well, I haven't got a file because there's, there's no advisor around that can pass it off. The, the file had to, has to go up in smoke for data protection reasons. Claims management companies, as much as um, they're now regulated and they're authorised by the FCA, there's a, a degree more control over them. If they're, they're finding that it's relatively easy with a particular type of complaint, and if it's, that's consolidated into a small number of firms as well, so it's easy to find those people. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people will be working for the same... Will will know each other and be, and be you know they've come from the same DB scheme, yeah. so we'll still talk to each other. So could easily pass the contact details around. It's it's a bit of a sitting duck, I think, for it. So yeah, I think there's there's a we don't know that it will all come through, but I yeah. think there's a there's a higher than usual probability that we'll see a good number volume of complaints that go through and succeed. Mm, okay, um, one thing one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, it made sense to me to to um, you know to to ask you. That as a client of a financial planning firm, Phil, which I know you are, yeah, uh, have you seen fees at that firm go up? Uh, no, no, I haven't. And um, I mean, part of that might be to do with my own industry experience. Right. Um, you know, I I, I kind of know roughly what I think the the cost and and I expect my financial advisor to make a profit out of me so yeah, yeah um I, I mean i've kind of moved to a fixed fee model because it suits my requirements things have settled down a bit we kind of i've worked with a financial advisor for a few years yeah. so it's fallen into a fairly set pattern we can kind of agree roughly what 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 amount of work is going to be required on a on an annual basis and agree yeah. that fee with them and I, i'm much more comfortable with that kind of arrangement that i've got in place now for it but um you don't see your price you know the I, amount that you pay I, I, i've not at this stage but um i've I, i'm also aware that um i'm slightly different i'm a terrible client in many respects <laughs> as, far as that's concerned to to deal with um but i know that the costs have have gone up you know yeah. the, the costs have increased steadily over the years yeah, for, yeah. for a number of people and it's um i mean th there's one firm that i was chatting to that's that's london based so mm. it's a pretty competitive market and um, they charge their clients half a percent um i think it's fair to say that most people in, in you know most of their competition so to speak um are charging maybe one percent certainly 0.8 percent on average something along those yeah. lines for it where they were struggling wasn't competition for clients, but it was for staff. So yeah. we know that the market's pretty competitive for staff. Um, their competitors are able to poach staff from them because they j drive more revenue from their own clients, which means that they can pay the staff more money, which means that they can nick staff from somebody that's paying the staff yeah. an awful lot less. So there's some economics around it above and beyond 
paying fees to the FCA and the FSCS and all that sort of stuff. Uh, That means that if you're charging your clients a lower fee, um, you're at a competitive disadvantage, even if, if it comes to staffing levels and stuff like that out there. So it's difficult to kind of square the circle and make make all of these things fit even if you want to drive down in a particular direction even if you want to charge a fee it's going to be a fairly chunky fixed fee to cover the costs of um the staff that you need to hire when there isn't a huge amount of um financial advisors that you compete for out there a lot of people quote the um the vanguard um pas service over in the u.s as a kind of as as a brilliant example of how kind of human but you know, online type low cost advice could function. What they tend to miss is that a CFP um, in the US generally will earn maybe 50, 60 grand a year. You can pick people up. There's a, there's plenty of people out there that you can employ at that kind of a rate. Mm. In the UK, you're struggling to find paraplanners sometimes for the same sort of amounts of money for it. Um, so it, it's, it's a really competitive employment market. Um, charging low fees is a great thing to do for your clients, but unless but you have to have built up a reasonable scale to do that, yeah, yeah. or you have to stay really small and not not yeah. take on staff to to be able to keep it at that level. Yeah, um, that's answered my question about scale and staffing very neatly, Phil. Um, one question I have is, you know, the departure of loads of advisors from the market, you know, through retiring, consolidation, that sort of thing, is supposedly meant to be a sort of key. Uh, thing at play SJP have said that I think they said 7,000 IFA is set to leave the market in the next sort of three to five years so basically what we're saying is supply is going down demand going up from everything that we can see um is that how big a factor is that in in driving up prices generally speaking I, I think again b- basic economics if supply is uh you know there's never been so many people at retirement's never been more complicated no um, the baby boom generation, if you wind the clock on over the next 10 years in the UK demographic, shows that the majority of people that, that buy advice from a financial advisor in the 60 to 70-year-old bracket, mm. that demographic is going to increase by 9% over the next 10 years. So there's going to be more people um, in the right demographic. There's going to be more wealth there. That generation are pretty good delegators. They're used to paying fees and paying people to do stuff for it rather than self-serve um so there's only going to be more demand for services at the same time as there's going to be fewer people out there able to to offer it i think there's a real there's a real moment of truth really for the advice profession out there where they've got to decide um is this is running a business about trying to make money Mm. um as it is for most people that are running a business out there or is it trying to be trying to drive costs down and being ultimately completely client focused yeah. um there's probably a halfway house somewhere along the uh, the lines for it mm. um but ultimately you know most advisors aren't really competing for client i find in london there's a bit more competition for very wealthy clients they'll shop around a little bit yeah outside of there there's virtually no competition for for people and where does that relate to the advice gap because obviously we've got this idea of you know all the people out there that perhaps need financial advice but just can't access it for whatever reason and you know prices potentially going up rather than down doesn't look good for you know so-called mass market financial advice and we know that perhaps the promise of the robos to address that problem hasn't quite been fulfilled in the way that many people thought it would yeah hasn't yet at least it it hasn't yet and i think that's you know robos at the moment are probably 10 to 15 years in the making people forget when everybody quotes hargreaves lands down and sjp as kind of 
businesses that they'd like to grow and build and uh, and be the next version mm. of. Um, and people started saying, I started hearing that when these businesses were 10 or 15 years old, maybe 20, 25 years old. And they forget it just takes a long time to get to yeah. the sort of scale that, that they're at at the moment. Um, and I think that's where, you know, robo-advice, I think, is great. It's in its infancy. It will take 10 or 15 years to, to generate a There's a lot of robo-advisors that aren't particularly cheap. You know, you basically, it's an online application form for a for a DFM run model portfolio service, as far as I can see with a lot of them. And it might cost you, um, you know, half the cost as it would as it would go in speaking to a financial advisor in some respects who'd give you a low-cost portfolio anyway. Yeah. So some of these things aren't really doing a, a, a great job. Um, but at the same time, it's never been e- it's never been easier to invest, I don't think. I, I, I don't think it's... I've, I've had people for years ask me, just friends that weren't really suited to financial advice, didn't really have the sums of money to, to, to do that anyway. Say, you know, what should I do? Where should I invest my money? And I really struggled to, to, to give them an answer mm. uh, that, that didn't involve just going and seeing the financial advisor about it. Whereas nowadays, it's relatively easy to say, well, here's two or three different um, low-cost platforms. Yeah, in most cases, I tell them to stick it in the the ubiquitous answer to everything, the Vanguard Life Strategy Fund. <laughs> yeah. Partly because... Um, it does a it does a fairly straightforward job, but also because I know that in ten years' time, when they might need to start looking at that money or using it, the price will probably be lower than it is when I tell them to invest it in, in the first place. So you kind of know that it's the proverbial no brainer, if you like. Yeah. And there's a there's a dozen other you know similar funds that you can invest in out there, which I think is a good thing. If you look at auto enrolment. Um, yeah, that's done an incredible job for getting people saving without them, without it needing to be engaging or interesting or exciting and all of those these other things that people are trying to do with financial services. Uh, somewhere quietly in the background, the most successful policy decision that's been made in the past ten years in savings and investment was was auto en- enrolment, mm. and everyone's largely forgotten about it. And money just gets chipped into the pension every yeah. every month without people even really thinking about it. There's yeah. a bit of work to do around making it better and, and, and getting the fund, the investment side of things better and getting self-employed people working on it as well. But, you know, that, that seems to work great for me. So the advice gap itself, people need a bit of advice and a bit of help and support along the way. Uh, but I think it's retirees where most of the complexity and the demand is coming from at the moment. And there's still plenty of advisors out there happy to help with that. Yeah. Um before we did this podcast, I asked you to come up with sort of two or three examples of perhaps where, uh, you know, scale, price pressure, consolidation, vertical integration all act together to produce this kind of potential perfect storm that I think we're talking about. Um, you've got your iPad in front of me, in front of you, uh, Phil. What are you looking at? Uh, tell me what's on the screen. I, I just, with it, having said that, I don't want to pick on Quilter. I will do exactly that because, and to be fair to them, it's all... It's all laid out very clearly in the in the last set of accounts, which run mm. to the end of 2017. So they they quote the the vertically integrated um, flows that they get coming into the business. Interestingly, the the, the vertically integrated ones um, have remained. It it went down a little bit due to, to sort of a market dip, presumably, um, but it's it's it stayed fairly stable. The actual, um, the, the the money that they've received from other groups out there has gone down over that period of time, which I think is interesting. They're more reliant mm. on that vertically integrated flow than, than ever before. And they, they state really clearly, and it's in the article, I've kind of quoted them in it, um, that 
they've managed to get more money into some of their more expensive funds off the back of it. So their overall yeah. yield and the overall amounts that they can charge now on both advice uh, and on asset management in particular has actually gone up over that period of time from one year to the next. So yeah. that's a business that's building enormous scale, but it comes at a, a, a cost and some of the advice arms, I mean, we know that SJP for years, the advice arm has been loss making. Mm. Um, so the criticism that, that they constantly get is that it's, it, these are loss-making advice businesses that are being propped up by yeah, cross-subsidized. Um, expensive, cross-subsidised by expensive asset management. Yeah. Um, the point that I've made is that without that in place, um, you, you're left with the, the, you know, a choice of do, do you want to see that collapse and, uh, and, and potentially for more money to fall onto the FSCS, in which case that's going to be shared and there's going to be a higher burden right across the board for everybody for it. Or is that something that the real politics within the FCA have got to kind of let let slide for now or just yeah. quietly, slowly nudge them into a different position? All credit to Quilter, though. They've, they've made no no bones about it. It's their laid, laid bare in the last set of accounts. Yeah. I know other groups out there that are vertically integrated that go to great pains to hide that kind of information, but it's certainly what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, and um, I would actually echo that, having um, spoken to Paul Feeney, the CEO, back end of last year. Uh, the first thing that we talked about uh, in the City Wire studio was their assertion that you know the the losers uh, in their own words the losers from you know uh, the financial advice market could well be the small firms who just haven't kept a pace uh, with what's going on. Uh, I definitely appreciate that level of transparency. And um, finally, Phil, um, talk to me about solutions. I mean, is there a solution to this? Is it just a case of deregulating, as so many advisors seem to indicate they would like? Or is more pricing regulation needed, or is it just not that simple? It, it, it's not that simple, and I think I've outlined some of the... that There's there's a, a number of choices that you can make along the way, and all of them result in a degree of pain. Yeah. Um, I think there's quite a hefty amount, slice of luck that's going to be required along the way. Yeah. Uh, something that I've been keen to try and resolve has been um, to try and stop as many complaints as possible um, hitting hitting the ombudsman in the first place or the FSCS. Prevention is better than a cure. Yeah, so so some of the things that I'd like to see happening is a little bit more innovation around the PI market. I've called for years for a bit of reform mm. on PI and the FCA's approach has been we don't see that there's a problem with it. We think things are working okay at the moment and you know we're not a we're not a heavy-handed regulator. We need we want to encourage competition. Um, which is kind of their mantra at times, you know. Let's yeah, let's let's try touch. and get. Let's well, I think it's 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 constantly about getting trying to stimulate um, a price reduction through greater competition. Yeah. And I roll my eyeballs constantly at that that sort of an approach to it cause for the reasons that we've talked about already. Yeah. I don't think it really yeah, works. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see a way of providing. Um, a means for the FSCS or the or, or the ombudsman or whoever to get access to the advice files that were given to a from a retiring IFA, so so it makes it easier to defend that in future. So almost a a vault, a warehouse that the, this yeah. business goes into, or potentially longer term runoff cover that's in place that wants because you don't have to have a runoff cover in, in most circumstances at the moment, yeah, but a way of actually saying, you know, that there's there's a way of exiting the industry in a a better way for for the people that stay in that industry. And some of that could be um, 
could involve just something as simple as, as leaving the files behind in a reasonable state that somebody else could pick up and read through and defend future complaints if they're spurious against you know, from claims management companies or, or consumers going further down the line. So there's a whole bunch of things that I think we could do mm. that are practical and don't cost a lot of, a lot of money, but they require um, regulators, not just the FCA, but yeah. regulators at large to be a little bit cuter and a bit more innovative as yeah. to how they think about dealing with these things. Mm. Thank you so much. Well, brilliant. Um, Phil, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. It was you. a pleasure. I really appreciate you doing so. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on again. Uh, I'm afraid we're all uh, out of time for today, but suffice to say, if you have enjoyed this episode, please do go to iTunes and subscribe. And if you're feeling particularly generous uh, on this lovely, lovely Tuesday, do leave us a review. Please, thanks. Uh, I should also add that if this episode has caught your attention and you have views about the cost of running your business or indeed how much clients need to be charged to keep an advice business profitable, uh, do get in touch. Uh, so with that said, do join us again for another episode of Planning People. But until next time, it's thanks and goodbye. <laughs>